Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. All right, good morning. How are you? Let's get to it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 through 12 is where we find ourselves as we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount over these coming weeks and months, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We've been in it for a couple weeks, and we're going to handle just the last few verses, in fact, the last Beatitudes. So if you're just joining us, maybe you're here for the first time, don't worry, we'll catch you up. We're working through this maybe most famous of all Jesus' sermons and portions of Scripture, which is often misunderstood, misapplied, and so we're going to work our way through this over the coming months. Now, as you're finding Matthew chapter 5, as always, if you don't have a Bible, we want you to use one of the ones in front of the rack, the rack and the chair in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, keep that Bible as your own. That's our gift to you, um, and we want you to have that. I think you'd be really helped to keep it open on your, on your lap open to the text today. We're going to be reading a lot of scripture as we always do, and um, I think that's just a great way to learn the Bible uh, and to to learn your way around God's Word. All right, as you're finding Matthew chapter 5, let me just mention briefly that we're going to take a little break next week out of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I am going to be out of town. I am um, taking my wife of 21 years on a little birthday trip. Um, She is going to be celebrating a birthday next week. Um, and I'm not telling you which one. I'm, I'm, I was born at night, but not last night. Um, and so we're going to get out of town, and Will Hawk will be preaching a standalone message. Um, will is serving in kids' church this morning. Uh, that'll be a, uh, just, Will's an excellent communicator of God's Word. We'd love for you to come to that. And then the week after that, we'll get back into the Sermon on the Mount. All right, so here's a question that um, I think you should, well, I ask myself this question every time as I'm preparing during the week. Why should you listen to what I have to say today? Now, on one level, we could say that sort of, praise God, hopefully, if the pastor of the church is preaching out of God's Word, which hopefully is a value here, we want to do that every Sunday, we should listen because it's God's Word. But why in particular today should you listen to me as I speak from God's Word? Well, I think you should listen today because I think in just these three verses, we find really embedded in them a description of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to live in this world as a follower of Jesus. These are huge and important words. So let me read Matthew chapter 5. Just verses 10 through 12, and before we read, let me just give you a heads up. We're going to look at four truths about persecution and the Christian. Four truths about persecution and the Christian. If you're a note taker, we'll have it all up on the screen in just a moment. Lots of scripture to read, but we're going to peel back and stare at this truth in this text and look at four truths about persecution. So Matthew 10 Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, continuing on from where we've been in the Beatitudes. This is the last Beatitude. This is the result of the previous seven that Jesus speaks about. 
when you live in that way or strive to live in that way, this is what will happen to you. Let me read. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we thank you for your word, and we are so aware, especially this morning, as we come to this text that speaks about that one of the marks of being a true follower of Jesus is that we will be scorned by this world. We are grateful that in your kind providence, you have us in a place where we can still freely open your word, proclaim your gospel boldly, and worship you. Let us not take that lightly. As we come to your word now, I pray that the believers in this room would be strengthened and encouraged, that we would, that this text would, would wake us up and put steel in our spines. I pray for my friends that are in this room, and certainly there are some with a, with a group this size. I pray for my friends in this room that are not yet trusting in Jesus, whether they're aware of that or maybe they're self-deceived, thinking that they're okay with you because of their relative morality. Lord, would you, by your kind and sovereign and good grace, would you call them out of darkness into light? Would you open their eyes so that they can see that their only hope is your son Jesus and what he has done in his life and his death and his resurrection? What he has done, let them put their trust in him alone. Lord, I pray that you do these things for the good of your people, for the salvation of unbelievers, and for the joy of your people. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little catch-up before we peel back four truths that I think these three brief verses point us to. I want you to see that the Beatitudes up to this point that we've been looking at that are, again, a very familiar portion of Scripture, form a kind of logical chain of the Christian life. So we we looked at how we are to be poor in spirit. And that doesn't mean that we're just to sort of be sort of, you know, humble people who just kind of know our place in a society. No, the, the context there is that we are poor in spirit before God, that we know we understand what our rebellion against a holy and gracious God has done. It has rendered us completely unable to do anything to make ourselves right with God. So it, it produces in this this humility and poverty of spirit so that we despair of our own righteousness, which then produces mourning. We mourn over our sin because we realize God is holy and we are not. And this mourning produces a meekness, a humility. We, we aren't haughty, you know, ungrateful, arrogant people, but we're meek and gracious and humble. God doesn't leave us sort of in that state, he produces in us a hunger for righteousness, a hunger and thirst for his way. And, and this hunger and thirst then 
starts to bend itself out towards the world around us. It's not just between us and God, but what he's done with, with us vertically between us and him then begins to bend its way out and we become merciful and gracious and, and we see other people through the lens of grace that's, been, that's happened to us. And so then we're pure in heart, we're transparent, we're, we're humble, gracious people. And then we are, as we looked at at the end last week, Peacemakers, this, this grace that we have received bends itself out to a world around, around us. And then now, in the text that we just read, Jesus says that the consequence of this in your life will be that the world will persecute you. The world, as that hated Jesus, will hate us. So four truths about persecution and the Christian life from our text this morning. Truth number one, true followers of Jesus will experience persecution in this world. Not maybe, not might, but true followers of Jesus will. Jesus guarantees it. They will experience to some measure, in some form, in some way, persecution in this world. Let me read some texts that point towards and support this truth. Paul writes to a young pastor, Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Luke, writing the book of Acts about the disciples as they were spreading the gospel across the Roman Empire, says of them in Acts chapter 22, picking up mid-sentence there, that they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. We must enter through the portal of tribulation or persecution. Then to the Gospel of John, where Jesus says it plainly. We can't miss this. John 15, verse 18, starting in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But in all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. And friends, although he's speaking particularly to his disciples in that text, I think clearly it has application to all Christians for all time. And then one chapter later in John John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in in me you may have peace. In the world you will... Not you might or you probably will. You will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. We could read more. But I think that's sufficient uh, evidence for us to realize that true followers of Jesus, it is guaranteed, it's guaranteed in God's word that true followers of Jesus will experience persecution in this life, in this world. Now, there's a few other things we need to say along with this truth. 
not all true followers of Jesus will suffer in the same way or in the same manner. Some will suffer extreme physical hardship, even death, and some may not. Some may suffer more social or cultural or maybe familial scorn and shame. But all Christians everywhere must, in fact, it's an evidence of our true discipleship that we will suffer persecution, but some will suffer uh, even with their own lives. Springer mentioned earlier in his prayer about uh, this, at the end of this month, the will be the national day of prayer for the persecuted church, and we just prayed this morning for the persecuted church. Let me read you some, some just some statistics about persecution. I just want to kind of sort of frame what is happening around the world for us, even as we think about our own culture. This comes from the uh, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission website, erlc.com, an excellent website uh, that, that uh, compiles lots of things about our culture and in this particular page, compiling some statistics about persecution of Christians in the world. Christians are the most persecuted religious group worldwide. An average of 180 Christians around the world are killed each month for their faith. In particular, 2014 was a particularly bloody year. There were at least 4,344 Christians who were killed, and there were 1,062 churches that were attacked because they were Christian. According to the U.S. Department of State, in more than 60 countries, Christians face persecution from their governments or surrounding neighbors because, solely because of their faith in Christ. The worst country in the world for persecution of Christians is North Korea. With the exception of four official state-controlled churches in Pyongyang, Christians in North Korea face the risk of detention in prison camps severe torture, and in some cases, execution for practicing their Christian beliefs. North Koreans that are suspected of having contact with South Korean or foreign missionaries in China and those caught in possession of a Bible have been known to be executed. The conditions in this country have remained the worst in the world for Christians for the past 12 years. In 41 of 50 nations... Christians uh, for persecution in 41 of 50 nations where Christians are persecuted, Christians are being persecuted by Islamic extremists. Christians also, we may not realize this, face persecution in countries where there are large Christian populations like Mexico and Colombia. For instance, in Colombia, Christian political rebels specifically, uh, uh, in Colombia, political rebels specifically target Christian leaders uh, because they take stands against their, uh, their drug and trafficking activity. Here's an article, just I want to read some excerpts from an article on opendoorsusa.org. Springer mentioned the Voice of the Martyrs and their website persecution.com or persecution.org, another excellent website that would give you lots of facts about persecution of Christians worldwide is opendoorsusa.org opendoorsusa.org and let me read a few excerpts out of this article about how Christians in Iraq are facing extinction at the uh, hands of Islamic terrorists this was written just this last fall 
Islamic militants have eradicated virtually every trace of Christianity from Mosul, Iraq's second largest city. Nina Shea, director of the Hudson Institute for Center for Religious Freedom, said, There are no Christians left in Mosul, Mosul, she said to CBN News. They have all been driven out. They have been told to convert to Islam or die or leave. Mosul has been the center of Iraq's Christian community for two millennia, but it is also the site with a significant place in biblical history. Ancient Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia was the location of the Babylonian and Assyrian empires as well as the ancestral home of Abraham. The city of Mosul is located on the site of the ancient city of Nineveh, the capital of the brutal Assyrian empire and the location of Jonah's preaching in the biblical account. Shea, who formerly served as vice chair for the U.S. Commission on International Religious uh, Freedom, said fighters with the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, ISIS, marked the property of Christians in Mosul with, Mosul with the Arabic word Nasrani or Nazarene. And you've probably seen maybe on the news or in social media that symbol. It looks like a, a kind of a, a, a U with a dot in the middle. That is the um, Arabic letter for N or Nazrani or Nazarene which is a clear reference to Christianity. So they would mark houses or establish them so that they knew to be Christian so that they would persecute or kill. Christian property owners were then driven out once this mark was on their property. Last month, and so this would have been last fall of 2014, militants offered Christians in Mosul the opportunity to enter into what is called a DEMA, an agreement which would have allowed them to practice the Christian, their Christian faith behind closed doors after they had paid a heavy tax and agree not to share their faith. However, multiple sources in the region said that offer was later withdrawn and all Christians were forced to leave or face execution. Members of Assyrian Christian and Chaldean Catholic groups streamed out of Mosul with the final ultimatum, when the final ultimatum was delivered this week by ISIS militants, Shea said, and they left empty-handed. Militants confiscated all their possessions, including homes, cars, clothes, and even their wedding rings, sometimes with the finger attached if it would not come off, she said. Shea also said reports of ISIS militants destroying or defacing ancient Christian sites, such as the supposed tomb of the prophet Jonah, fourth-century monasteries and churches. She added that militants tore down crosses in the city and burned ancient Christian manuscripts. There is zero tolerance for the religious, for, for any religion other than this groups. They are rabidly bigoted against Christians. They hate Christians. They are eradicating every trace of the 2,000-year history of Christianity in every area they have conquered, including Iraq's second largest city, the center of Christianity in Iraq. And we could spend a lot of time reading, not just about these Islamic terrorists, which is catching our attention now, but also that's been going on for decades and decades in North Korea and in many other parts of the world. I read that not to now launch into beating us up and saying, okay, now here's what we need to learn from this Christians in the West, that that's what good Christians face, and we're just really bad materialistic Christians, so let, come on, boys and girls, let's get it together, and this would happen to us. No, I just want us to have a, a global scope of what our brothers and sisters are facing around the world. And in fact, Springer, in his prayer, quoted that text from 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. So as we look at this text, it would be, it would be, it would be 
it'd be a crime for us to think about persecution and us not to consider our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering even death, even as we speak. And right now, as we gather in the freedom of this room, there are Christians that are gathering underground, fearing persecution and even death. And when they suffer, there should be part of us here in the West and in America, in Columbus, Georgia, that suffers with them and prays with them. More on that later. Now, we should not pretend to know all of God's purposes and why He allows certain cultures and certain regions of the world and certain countries and certain societies to have particular freedoms and others do not. That's a sociodemographic study that we're not prepared to, to go into today. So the point is not for us to beat ourselves up and say, oh, well, we're just wimpy Christians. No, God has purposes for every culture. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27, let me read this really important text to help you understand the providence of God. And by the way, just this morning in the Sunday morning class on the Apostles' Creed, Ron Mullins was speaking about this verse. And if you haven't jumped into one of the Sunday morning classes Ron's doing one on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, uh, Robert is doing one on prayer. It's not too late to jump in on that. But listen to this great truth about the overarching providence of God in all things, even in your very life, and why you live in Columbus, Georgia, or Phoenix City, or Fort Benning, or wherever you live in the surrounding area. Acts 17, verse 26 and 27. And, And he, meaning God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live in on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, yet He is actually not far from each one of us. So let's just take that in, that God in His providential sovereign plan determined to have Christians live in Iraq and North Korea, and in the hills of Columbia, and in Columbus, Georgia, for His purposes. And we should take that in and realize that that means that God has a sovereign purpose for our sisters on the, uh, brothers and sisters on the other side of the world and for us. So just one little minor rabbit trail application. That means we should stop complaining about our cubicle at Aflac or Total Systems or the platoon that we're in at the army, in the army or whatever, because God in his kindness didn't just kind of shake the dice, throw them, oh, oh, I'm sorry, you got Smith's station. <laughs> sorry, Reuben. <laughs> I wouldn't... I didn't mean that's a bad thing. Or, you know, you got El Centro, California, where I grew up. (laughs) In this place where it's oftentimes growing up in El Centro, California. I saw my my El Centro natives here with me. Sometimes I would get up in the morning in my hometown. I'd step outside my parents' window and I'd see miles and miles of dirt and tumbleweed and chain link fence. And I'd say, you know, when they were pioneering America, why did they decide to stop here? (laughs) Like... Another hour and a half, and you'd be in San Diego, but somebody decided to stop here. But the point is, is that, friends, notice, take in the implications that God is sovereign, and He has divine and specific and particular purposes for us to be where we are now. So let's not spend, let's spend very little time Thinking about, oh, well, God, why, why, is, why am I here? What's this? Or feeling is sort of a self-absorbed guilt 
let's just take in this point that wherever we are in the world, whether in North Korea or Iraq or in Colombia or in Mexico or in California or in Georgia or New York or any army base that you find yourself in, we know this, that true Christians will in some manner, in some way, whether physical or cultural or societally, face persecution. It is guaranteed, and in fact, it is a mark of true Christianity. And even at times, uh, this persecution can come from uh, even other Christians. In fact, I think we're living in a time in the history of the church in America where cultural Christianity, this sort of self-absorbed, you know, relevant-seeking, light, sort of, you know, all-about-us Christianity is dying. Praise God. And when something dies, it usually goes down swinging. And I think, as Christians are having to, I think, appropriately take stands on biblical issues that we're facing, like we're going to talk about in a midweek fellowship, you have people that have thought they were Christians who really weren't Christians now lashing out at true Christians for having a biblical stance on things. Anytime you have a person or a group of people taking Jesus seriously, they will by necessity rub some people the wrong way, even some so-called Christians. There is an absolute folly in hip, relevance-desiring Christianity, a type of Christianity that seeks to sort of blend in and be cool. Friends, we as God's people are called to be strange and peculiar. Our message is not one of self-help. You know what you believe if you're a Christian? You believe that the sovereign creator... I can't even say it. I mean, you almost have to chuckle. It's so scandalous. The sovereign creator of the universe, the all-powerful, eternal God, decided to, out of nothing, create, not because he needed us, not because the Trinity got bored, but because of an overflow of his creative joy, he creates everything that is. And then <laughs> he lets his creation rebel against him. I know, it's crazy. He lets his creation rebel against him knowing that he had a plan from eternity past to send his son, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God, to become a man and live the life that his people, his human beings that he created should have lived but didn't and rebelled against him to live that life perfectly and then allow his son whom he has loved forever to lay down his life and then he decided to pour out his wrath on his most beloved, his son, so that he would satisfy his anger and extinguish it so it wouldn't be poured out on his people. And then he caused his son, remember this is the all-powerful God of the universe who could with one breath smoke us all like a cheap cigar and start over. In fact, he kind of did that one time in Genesis chapter 6 but, or 9 or whatever it is. But thank God he doesn't do it again, right? This is an all-powerful God who can defeat his enemies with a word. 
And he humbles himself and dies on a cross, allows his son to be, to be crucified on a cross by the very creation he created, rise again in victory, and now commands all people everywhere to repent and believe. And those who put their hope and trust in not what they have done or how right they are, but in what Jesus has done, will be with him forever and ever and ever. Friends, that's... Well, here, I'm just going to use biblical language. That's foolish. That's folly. And if you think I'm being heretical or sacrilegious, I'm just quoting Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1. He says that the message of the cross is folly to a world that relies on human strength. My, my point is, is that Christianity was never meant to blend in, to be a mere message, to give us some tips on how to navigate through life and be happier or more successful or whatever. Not that those things aren't benefits of the Christian life, but we are a peculiar, strange people who worship a criminal who was charged by the state as a guilty man, but was completely innocent and was in fact God and rose again. Friends, we're strange, and we're not meant to fit in, and that strangeness will draw the ire of the culture around us. So with that in place, that true followers of Jesus will experience persecution, let's transition into this next truth, that it is possible, then, truth number two, it is possible to be persecuted for the wrong reason. Okay, it's very possible. In fact, I think that happens a lot. So let me read from 1 Peter chapter 4. Listen to what Peter says. Beloved, verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. Boy, there's a whole lot of theology just right there. Don't be shocked, right? We do not live in a Thomas Kincaid painting. <laughs> the world is broken. It's jacked up. And when we act shocked at a broken world around us, we, 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 I think we subconsciously communicate that we really don't understand the Bible. I can't believe that the world is acting like sinners. I mean, the world's broken. Guys, it's broken. Don't be surprised. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 15, now this is important. But let none of you suffer or be persecuted as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, and he doesn't give us an exhaustive list of all the reasons we can wrongly be persecuted. He says, don't be persecuted for being a complete idiot. Right? Or, or any of these other things. And I think that sometimes that happens. It's possible to be persecuted for the wrong reason. I think one reason maybe Christians in our culture are persecuted is because we forget the gospel and we act morally superior or we're grumpy or cynical. In fact, I think that's the spirit of this age of the church is cynical grumpiness. And, I, and listen, I got a little bit of it in me too. Just, just grumpy. I get up grumpy. I go to bed grumpy. You know, we're just, we're just, we have the spirit of Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly more than we have the spirit of Christ. And if you're upset with that, email me at robert at insidecrosspoint.com. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? I'm sorry, Robert. Your, your inbox is going to, your internet's going to explode. There's just this grumpiness that seizes us. And when we act grumpy towards a broken, hostile world, 
we are shouting that we have gospel amnesia. Listen to what Titus, Paul's letter to Titus, says about us before we were Christians. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Oh, listen. The other day, I heard about some brother that fell into some sin. And I just kind of like, my, my first reaction is, oh, how could, how could he do that? And it's like the Holy Spirit just came in and punched me in the gut and said, whoa, whoa, killer, whoa. You remember about 25 years ago? You remember that was you, right? And I just kind of shut my mouth and walked off with my tail between my legs. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because we were good little Baptist kids or Methodist kids or Presbyterian kids or because our daddy was a deacon, not because we grew up in church and went to VBS and had all the right answers. No, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. So if you're a Christian, it's not because of anything you have done, but he loved you because he loved you. And in eternity past, he decided to set his affection on you, not because you're American, not because you're Southern, not because you're Baptist, not because you're a church kid, but because he decided to love you. And you know what? That, that should produce in us this, just this humble, meek, poor in spirit, mourning over our sin, graciousness. Listen to the way Jonathan Edwards put how we should view people around us. Jonathan Edwards, a great American theologian and pastor. Some of you, all you know about him is that one sermon that he preached called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and you just think that he's this mad, angry American Puritan. No, Jonathan Edwards, well, I mean, yeah, he, he wrote that sermon, and it was awesome, and it, it struck, made revival happen in America, but he wrote so much about the beauty of Christ. Before he was 25, he wrote like 60 or 70 daily resolutions about how he wanted to live. And this is number eight. He wrote this. He wrote this one when he was 21 years old. And just think about the earnestness of that generation, right? So if you're a 21-year-old guy and you are blowing your, like you are wasting your life on video games, think about what, what Johnny Ed was doing when he was 21, all right? Let's read number eight here. Resolution number eight. Resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of confessing my own sins and misery to God. <laughs> I'm tempted to just sort of close my book and all of us just kind of slink off to lunch now and Let's be nice to our waitresses for once, right? Uh, it's just, we are often persecuted for the wrong reasons because we're just jerks who have gospel amnesia. Friends, to the degree that we are frustrated with the world around us simply because it threatens our Christian utopia, we demonstrate that our hopes are misplaced and our perspective is far too small. We have shrunk the promises of the gospel and eternity and our mission here on this earth. We've shrunk them down to mere cultural comfort. And we've made the Christian life 
mere pragmatic tips on how to live to have a better life here and now. And friends, that is simply just not the gospel. So we're to be true followers of Jesus. We'll experience persecution. It's possible to be persecuted for the wrong reasons, which then leads us then to a consideration of why we should be persecuted. So let's look at number three. We are to be persecuted for righteousness' sake on the account of Jesus. Let me read our our text again. Jesus says in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then he says in verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So there is a clear reason why we should be persecuted. And Jesus says it's because of righteousness on the account of Jesus. So then, if we are to be persecuted for righteousness on the account of Jesus, that's super important that we understand what that means. So what does it mean to be persecuted for righteousness on the account of Jesus mean? Well, it cannot mean that we are persecuted for a a sort of innate righteousness in us, right? Because we know that, well, the prophet Isaiah says in the Old Testament that our righteousness is as filthy rags. So we've got to see this. We need to understand what Jesus means by for righteousness on his account. And I think embedded in this little statement is the very good news of the gospel. So if you have a Bible, go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. It'll be up on the screen if you're not familiar with it or you don't have. Romans chapter 1. This text is the text that Martin Luther was reading some 500 years ago when he saw He saw, it's like the Lord turned on a light and he saw the reality of the gospel of grace, right? So he was a Catholic monk and he was bound up in this system of salvation by merit. In other words, you must do certain things. You must carry on these particular works, these sacraments, these ordinances of the church in order to gain or merit God's righteousness. And Luther stumbled across Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, and it's like a light bulb went off. So listen to verse 16 and 17. Paul writes to the Roman church, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17, For in it, meaning the gospel, the good news, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteousness, the righteous shall live by faith. So go to Romans chapter 3, and as you're flipping to Romans chapter 3, let me just explain what Paul said there. He's saying that, that in the good news of the gospel, God has revealed a righteousness that we need and that we apprehend by faith. Okay, so here's the whole point of the book of Romans. Paul is defending the righteousness of God who is holy. He is defending God's honor by saying, this is how a holy God even lets any of us wicked sinners even close to him. And the way God keeps himself righteous is he makes unrighteous, ungodly 
Sinful people, righteous. And how does he do that? Not by scanning the crowd and saying, oh, yeah, yeah, he's got a good arm. Let's pick him. Oh, he's got a pretty good 40. Let's get him on my team. He looks like he could block. Come on, join my team, Johnny. No, the way God, who's righteous, who can't dwell with anything that is unrighteous, makes dreadful sinners righteous is not by looking for righteousness in them, but by making them righteous by his sovereign grace, right? And so then let's read in Matthew, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So the rest of Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 and Romans chapter 3, the first part of it, is basically just Paul setting up the argument that everybody is sinful and unrighteous and separated from God and deserves his judgment. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether wherever you come from, you are accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being, verse 20, will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So he's saying this law in the Old Testament couldn't save. It couldn't bring a righteousness. All the Old Testament law could do, which certainly had its purpose, was to just shine light on unrighteousness. And that's where we are. Okay, we got it, Paul. We are unrighteous. Now, how are we going to be made righteous? Verse 21. But now, two of the sweetest words ever. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So this Old Testament law that couldn't do anything but illuminate, but can't save, now a righteousness apart from the law. In fact, the law was pointing towards it. But this righteousness apart from the law has come, and we're going to find out what that righteousness is in just a second. It's Christ. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. That word propitiation is so important. It means that Jesus became a wrath-bearing, wrath-extinguishing substitute for us He bore all of the wrath that should have been ours and he turned it into God's grace and favor for all those that would believe. He put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. So God's, remember, Paul is defending the righteousness of God. How could this righteous God bring anybody close to him in their unrighteousness? Well, he just told us, through Jesus. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, so right now, listen to me. Some of you, your eyes are rolling back in the head. You're like, oh man, I knew I wouldn't understand half of what this preacher said. Somebody invited me to church and here he goes again, read a bunch of verses that have big words like justification and all this stuff and propitiation. Ah, I'm never coming back here. That may be true. (laughs) I don't know. But listen to me right now. You can understand this. In fact, you understanding this is the difference between you knowing God and not knowing God rightly. Listen to me. This is so important. Okay, this, herein lies the gospel. 
We are sinful, wicked people. You are, right? I don't have time to build that case, but that's, what you, that's how we are born naturally. And there's no way that unrighteous people can draw near to a holy and righteous God. That's the great dilemma of the scriptures. And the good news of the gospel is not merely that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but the good news of the gospel is how a righteous, holy God makes sinful, unrighteous people righteous. And how he does it is he takes his son, the only true righteous one, who is righteous because he's God from eternity past. He's God the Son forever and ever with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in heaven. And he becomes a man and he takes on the likeness of human flesh and he lives a perfect righteous life as a man. And then he bears God's punishment on the cross for the sin of all those that would ever turn and trust in him. That's called faith, repentance, right? And then he, he then credits God's righteousness. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. That is the gospel. That's what Paul was just talking about in Romans chapter 3. And here's where it gets even better and more scandalous. You may be thinking, okay, I get it. I'm sinful. I'm unrighteous. My greatest need is to draw near to a righteous God. Jesus has intercepted the punishment that was mine. He was righteous. He died. But you said just a second ago that I was dead in my sin. How could I even have faith in Jesus? I don't even know if I have enough to have faith. Well, here's even the better news about the gospel. Even the faith that we have is not something that God expects us to muster up because how can dead people muster anything up other than stank? That's the only thing you contribute, stank. But the goodness of the gospel is, is that even the faith that God requires is a gift. And this is the way God saves people. When he deems to save an eternity past, when he sets his affection on a person, he has deemed to end time in the course of their life in some way for them to hear the news and for that news to awaken their soul and to give them the gift of faith and repentance. And with the gift that they receive through no credit of their own, they then breathe and look and see Jesus and they place their hope in Jesus. And now this is scandalous. Now the righteousness of the eternal Holy Son of God is theirs. Now he or she who was unrighteous and ungodly and in fact dead in their sins is now made alive and the righteousness of God is imputed to them. Okay, so now back to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says that we are to be persecuted not because we're some moral crusaders, but because we have received through sovereign grace that righteousness. And that righteousness now transforms our lives and we, we begin to have it bend outward towards others and we now live as a trophy of God's grace. And here's why Jesus says that the world won't like that because the world hates the sovereign grace of God. You see, since the garden, 
We have all, all of us, all of us children of Adam and Eve have been trying to say, I can do it on my own. We are, by nature, glory thieves. And we hate, by our nature, to hear about how we have nothing to do with it. We hate it, don't we? I mean, come on, it dwindles itself, it dwindles itself down even into just our little, our little cultures. You know, something good happens in the company and you were kind of involved in the project, but somebody who else who's kind of the head on it, you know, gets all the credit and they're having the little lunch with the little, you know, catering in fajitas or whatever and we're having a congratulatory company lunch because we got the deal. And you know, behind the scenes, you worked hard, but, you know, Captain Knucklehead is the one who's getting all the credit, Right? And he doesn't mention your name in the sort of, you know, speech. And you're like, Ugh. I should have got a little credit. We want a little credit. And the world hates the message of the gospel because we don't get any credit. And we need to understand that that is why Christians, when they rightly live out the implications of the gospel, will be hated by the world. And we shouldn't be discouraged by that. Let me read this text, and then we'll move on and end. Listen to this. Be encouraged by this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ Jesus, in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, it's the fragrance from death to death. To the other, it's the fragrance from life to life. So what God is saying there through Paul is that those whom God is saving, this message of the free righteousness imputed to us through Christ, which is the gospel, will cause some people to love it, and it will be life to them, and they'll run to it. But many people will hate it because it's the smell of death. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, Commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So we are to be persecuted, not because we are better than anybody else, not because we are some moral judge, but because of the gospel, because of the free grace of God, because of righteousness sake, because we have received what we did not deserve, and that message, that good news is bending itself out in our lives to where we are living in this way. So just one little application question before we wrap this up with truth number four, and I'll be quick. Just an application. Am I enduring at least some level of scorn or persecution for being a Christian? Like Jesus says, it is, we, we must, we, it's going to, it's going to happen. If I'm not, then either there is something seriously wrong with the way I am living out my Christian life, or I may not truly be a Christian. Are you enduring at least some level of persecution? And then four, and we'll end with this quickly. We are to endure persecution by rejoicing in the hope of heaven. Notice what Jesus says in verse 12. He says, you're going to be persecuted. And he says, how do, you, how do you handle this? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, we can endure persecution in this life because ultimately our reward is not a better life here for these remaining decades, but ultimately our reward is in heaven with the king. Listen to what Paul, or the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10 to Christians who are being persecuted. And let's just take this in and end on this. Hebrews 10, verse 32. The writer of Hebrews is writing to these Christians who are being 
um, persecuted and some of them dragged off to, 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 to great trial. And some of them are considering recanting their confession of faith and going back to their former way of life. He says in verse 32, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who treated. For you had compassion on those who... You had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully, listen to this, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Can you imagine the mindset of those early Christians? People came and seized their property and plundered it and their reaction was, yes, I've got a better possession coming. Jesus, the hope of heaven. That's, friends, that is, that is otherworldly. And he goes on to say, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, meaning Jesus. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls, because we realize that our true inheritance and reward is not a white picket fence and these 40 or 50 years, but it is heaven. It's Christ forever. And when I see what is mine, I can finally let go of this world and be of some earthly use in this world. We will face persecution. We must face persecution. We should not be persecuted for the wrong reasons. We should be persecuted on the account of the righteousness of Jesus that's been given to us as a free gift. And we endure persecution by rejoicing in the city that is coming heaven where the king is and before I pray I am maybe more than usually very convicted and slayed by this text because uh, well I'm a grumpy cynical comfortable Christian And I need this text to wound me and heal me and make me more like Jesus. And I think you do too. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to respond to your word, I pray that these words that you have spoken to us through Matthew 5, 10 through 12, would not be like uh, this water that just sort of falls off of us. Like, a, like on the back of a bird dog that jumps in the lake and he gets out and he shakes it off and he runs off. Lord, would, would you instead cause the water of your word to sink into every pore of our lives would we be simultaneously convicted slayed laid bare wounded by your word and then simultaneously healed encouraged 
strengthened by your word. Would you put steel in our spine? Would you help us face an increasingly hostile culture, not with anger or cynicism or grumpiness because we're, things aren't like they used to be, but would you put steel in our spines so that we can face an increasingly hostile world knowing that you are sovereign, knowing that you have put us in this place, in this generation, for this time, for these purposes, not to retreat into our bunkers, but to stand firm and give our lives away as a display of the gospel. And then you take our little meager, imperfect lives and you use them as an aroma. To those you are saving, it's the scent of life and they come running to it. To those that are dying, it's the scent of death and they hate it. And let us be okay with that. And put steel in our spines. And Lord, we... We link our arms and our hearts and our prayers with our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing far worse than we are. God, we suffer with them and we pray that you would stop persecution, but we know that you are not out of control in some kind, gracious, mysterious way. You are working all things according to your good and gracious plan. So we take heart in that even as we pray for persecution to stop in these places. And if it continues, Lord, we know that you have a divine purpose for it. Or would you do that for believers in this room and across the world? And then finally, Lord, for a person in this room who's not yet trusting in Christ, they came in unbelieving. God, would you, would you open their eyes to see that their greatest need is to have a righteousness that is not their own. That you are holy and righteous and they are not and there is nothing they can do to make themselves right with you. So something has to happen, not within them, but outside of them that needs to be theirs. And you are calling them even now to turn from trusting in themselves and to put their hope and faith in Jesus and in his righteousness. God, would you open eyes around this room so that those that are not trusting in you when they came in, so that they can see it. Even if most of what I've said has confused them or my delivery's just been not their cup of tea or whatever, God, don't let them leave this room without looking away from their own righteousness and to the righteousness that you freely provide through your son Jesus. And friend, if that's you right now, you need to look away from yourself. You need to not commit to do better. You need to stop trying to do your own stuff and think that that may make you right with God. And you need to look to Jesus and freely receive his righteousness. And then link arms with other people who've received that righteousness and live in line with that. That's what you need most of all. You need to trust. You need to turn from self-trust and put your hope in what Jesus has done. If you're doing that even right now, I'd love for you to just note that on the little connection card that you're trusting in Christ today or stick around, talk to one of the pastors. We'd love to talk further with you about that. Lord, would you do? Would you do those two things? Would you strengthen Christians? And would you save unbelievers today?
And as we come around your table to receive communion, as we take the bread and the juice for those of us that respond in that way, Lord, would it, would it be like smelling salt underneath our nose to remind us that we are not, they crucified our king and they will treat the subjects of his kingdom the same way. So for those of us that are Christians that respond in just a moment by coming to the table, Lord, let us remember that we worship a crucified king who won the victory through death and resurrection. Lord, I pray that you would help us worship you now and respond rightly. In Jesus' name, amen.